the Center for Education Research and Innovation, we're in the habit of asking questions that matter and looking for answers that impact. But how do you do that? How does a researcher get to that point? What we do know is that researchers are united in their curiosity. What we don't know is the stories behind the curiosity. Let's dive in. Once again, welcome to the Curiosity Habit, and today I have with me Dr. Doreen Balmer. She's a professor of pediatrics and the co-director of research on pediatric education, as well as an endowed chair in the Department of Pediatrics at the University of Pennsylvania. It's a great pleasure to have you with me, Doreen. I've been trying to talk to you for a while, so I'm very excited about this conversation. Thank you for having me. Okay, Doreen, you mentioned before we started this, you have uh, listened to a few of these episodes, so you might have an idea of how I like to start the conversation. And it's usually because I want to know about the person behind the research. I always like to start by learning a little bit more about people's families and lives when they were little. So if you can help us with a little bit of a description of where, where did you grow up? Uh, what kind of activities got your attention, your curiosities? What was the environment that you were experiencing when you were growing up? So uh, I grew up about an hour north of Philadelphia. Uh, I currently live in Philadelphia, so not too far from home, uh, but in many ways quite different because I grew up on a farm in a Mennonite community um, and not at all, uh, very little, if not none, <laughs> academic exposure. Um, so I grew up, great large family, working on the farm, playing on the farm, riding bike on the farm, working on the farm is probably the biggest one. And that sense of, uh, persistence and diligence and, and duty and integrity and a work ethic, I think is what surrounded me when I was growing up um, more so than any kind of engaging academic conversation. I was an avid reader. I think that probably is what a lot of people would say, uh, reading a lot of history, a lot of Nonfiction is a bit of an escape, I guess, but also very, again, very engaged with family, working with family. And, and that really was, in some ways, a bit of a bubble mm -hmm. uh, growing up and, and in my early days. And so it was hard to, I, I think what I've, you know, looking back, uh, the colleague who always says you should have been a sociologist because I tend to think a lot about how those larger social structures and communities shape us and shape our thinking. Mm -hmm. So the whole notion of research and academics was really never even entered my mind as a, as a child. I assumed I was going to be a farmer's wife and, mm -hmm. um, and when that didn't happen, I thought, okay, well, now let's let's look at our options. Right. And so, so when, when you talk about the bubble, and, and I have very little knowledge about uh, Mennonites' communities, could you give us a sense of 
what was the kind of work that you were used to do? Because you mentioned work more than any other activities. And how what the dynamics in a large family that lived in a bubble? I'm, I'm curious about that. Work was yard work, farm work, gardening. Um, again, my dad had a business, but also had a farm. So there was, you know, my brothers would be the ones driving the tractors and the equipment, and I would be the one, you know, bringing out the lunch or running over somewhere to some garage for parts. Uh, so working together, uh, but also sort of a, um, how do you call that, uh, relegation of tasks by gender. Mm. So Mennonites are very relatively conservative in their their belief system, um, relatively more more simple in a way of life, and I think that's much to the their benefit. Um, yeah, so it was a lot of family and farming and working and eating together and celebrating together and again with all sort of with going to church together all within this bubble okay and, and when you said that reading was your escape how did you get acquainted with reading like somebody showed to you how did you start going that path yeah that's that's a question i don't i don't remember being read to at all as a child i probably was i just don't remember that I remember riding bike to, um, again, living on the farm, we had a ride into town and riding into bike and riding my bike into town to a little library. It was at the time, it was an old school that was converted into a library and just, you know, coming home with eight or 10 books and reading voraciously. Oh, wow. That's amazing. And then what was the point in which you realized that you were not going to be the wife of a farmer? How old were you and what was the inside there? Oh, those are the love stories of the early 20s, you know, when I was in my oh. early 20s. Um, and, you know, just, just realizing after sort of a broken engagement that this wasn't going to be my life. And I, and I remember thinking, well, I'm not going to sit around and wait. So I ended up going to school, um, which was not, I mean, I'm a, sort of a first generation person. So it wasn't something that was common certainly wasn't in any way people weren't getting in my way of doing it but it I would say no one was outright encouraging me because they hadn't had that experience yeah. uh, but again no, no big big barriers other than me just having to, to figure out figure out a lot of things on my own um, and in my my first career, I was a nutritionist. So I went to Immaculata. I went to a Catholic all girls school um, and got a bachelor's degree in nutrition. And um, it was really through nutrition that I then pursued extra training in neonatal nutrition. Mm. And neonatal nutrition is what got me to Children's Hospital. Okay, you and answered my question. <laughs> I want to know what was the journey from, well, now is from your Mennonite community to nutrition and from nutrition to medical education and from there to pediatric education. So can we find a story that connects those four? Yeah. So again, the nutrition 
nutrition degree um, from Immaculata, then doing a master's in nutrition education, also at Immaculata. So I, I, I knew even while I was a nutritionist that I was interested in education. I often thought that I wanted to work overseas. And so when you work in neonatal intensive care in North America, you realize quickly how well resourced we are. And there's not that much that's transferable from the NICU to potentially developing countries. But I ended up doing a, a little bit of work around neonatal nutrition um, as a way to, to think about how would I, how will this will I use this in the future? Um, I never did work overseas, but it did get me into again Children's Hospital of Philadelphia because of that extra training. Um, and it was really uh, so I, I I grew I sort of grew up professionally in pediatrics. Hmm. Um, all of my early professional home was the Academic Pediatric Association. Um, and I only really knew pediatric GME because Children's Hospital is a large freestanding children's hospital. We're affiliated with the University of Pennsylvania, but I didn't have much interaction with, with medical students, uh, rather mostly with pediatric residents. Yeah. And worked in a fabulous team in the NICU. It's back in the day when, you know, anybody who worked in the NICU, you know, if they needed help transporting a kid to the OR, you just raised your hand and sort of helped out. You know, now there's all these kinds of uh, safety uh, mm -hmm. concerns, perhaps appropriately, but we really work very, very closely as a NICU team with myself, a social worker, a pharmacist, and of course the residents and the fellows who were working in the unit. Mm -hmm. And it, it was that experience of being part of the team and seeing how the other team members learned, particularly uh -huh. the residents, like how in the world can they learn, you know, very, very sick kids, very, very distraught families, well before the duty hours and, and all kinds of professional hierarchies. And that fascinated me, not really nutrition. So when I decided to go back to school, I, I knew I wanted to study more along the lines of education than nutrition. Okay, so let me go back a little bit. So you said when you were with your family, like you, you were not opposed, nobody opposed you to do anything, but you were neither encouraged because people didn't have the experience. How did you end up choosing nutrition? What was about it that draw you there the farming link ah i i knew how to i knew growing food i it made sense to me we did a lot of our own canning freezing cooking mm -hmm. baking and i thought geez people get paid to do this <laughs> so so that it to me nutrition was just sort of a it, it came more naturally i think than than some of the other things and then so once I got into nutrition and sort of started to understand, well, there's a whole science behind it, then then my eyes were open to to more than just, you know, gardening and food preparation. Right. OK. And I'm also curious because you mentioned also that you're interested in how the social structures influence people. 
coming from where you were coming and now landing into the, I imagine, public education system or like being in the outside the bubble. How did it feel? Like, I'm an immigrant. Does it feel like an immigrant kind of way, the experience of moving out of the bubble into this big world of Philadelphia? That's a that's a good question. I I haven't had the immigrant experience, so I'm not sure I can say, but it it's I, I think they use the word um, code switch. Oh, okay. we, um, and I think we all do that when we are particularly even just going home to our parents and we sort of step into the roles that we had and we know those stories and how to talk and how to act and what's expected of us in that, for me, that home setting. Mm-hmm which was different than how I talked and what was expected of me, for instance, in the neonatal intensive care unit. Yeah. Okay. It's like me switching languages when I go yeah. back to Colombia. That I that's that makes total sense. You also mentioned that you were that you have this interest about going overseas. Again, not having a, a role model from your family. What was the the seed? that was planted in you to get that interest, even though you didn't do it? You know, I'll probably link that back to the Mennonite community and just a very religious upbringing. And we had a lot of missionaries come in our home oh. and, and uh, so that we supported either financially or that would stay with us. So I was exposed to, you know, people who were living in different parts of the world, mostly as, as missionaries. Mm-hmm. Okay. That, Okay, that, that clarifies to me a lot. Thank you very much. <laughs> and now we were in the transition from nutrition to medical education. Now you're back to school, but with a different lenses. So what was the lenses there and then from there to where you are now? So when I went, are you speaking when I went from my, for my PhD, which is an educate in? Yeah. Yeah. So I, my PhD is actually, believe it or not, is not in education. Um, it's in public health. Yeah. But but the caveat being, I had a wonderful experience at Temple University. And because I came from a, you know, I had this clinical, clinical background. And like most many medical educators, you sort of work clinically as well as your education hat. So I was sort of aware of and used to that juggle of trying to do both. And so oh. for me, like doing a, a PhD in public health felt pretty comfortable. Like I knew that language, I could I could grasp that. And this particular program at Temple was very supportive of, the, of its PhD students. And it was like, what do you want to study, Doreen? And how do we help you get there? Mm-hmm. And so even though I was sort of landed in the Department of Public Health, they had a lot of health education work behind them. And so really good ties with the Graduate School of Education. So I did enough public health to pass my comprehensive exams, but all of my extra coursework I did in in, in the education department. Okay. And so that's how I that's how for me I was able to blend public health and education. It's it's a very sort of non-traditional route as I suppose almost everyone's path is yeah. into medical education. And that that's mine. 
Okay. So when you decided to do a PhD, so the driver to do a PhD and do research, did it come from the environment you were surrounded in the NICU? That that was kind of your trigger? Or was yeah, something in particular? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I, I can't, like the whole idea of academics or doing research was just not even, I, I, I don't know that I could even conceive of it growing up. Um, and it really wasn't until I was here at Children's Hospital where you can almost like the total opposite, like not, not conceive of it because it's a very, um, uh, it's a wonderful place, very competitive in, in appropriately in, in its work is huge research institute and, and and sort of research is the lifeblood of children's hospital along with excellent patient care and, and education but uh, everyone around me was doing research and so I thought well that's I, I, I was interested in it mm -hmm. my problem was that I was asking very qualitative questions and didn't know that qualitative research existed. Okay. So how did it work for you? Oh, that, it didn't work well at all. Oh, <laughs> I was going to do a randomized controlled trial of feedback. Wow. And then I realized that my friends who were neonatal attendings or neonatal fellows or residents, they didn't even, they they didn't understand feedback the same way, clearly. Residents would complain, we never get feedback. And attendings would say, well, we give feedback all the time. So I thought now, hmm, if I do a controlled trial of feedback, people aren't even gonna know what the intervention is. So well, this, <laughs> right? is, this is just not gonna work. It, it's not gonna, and it's not going to be like it is in the NICU. I can't take it out of the NICU. Um, if I take it out of the NICU, I'll change it. Okay. And um, so I didn't know what I was going to do until I happened upon a one credit introduction to qualitative research course um, and no, you know, 30 minutes into the course, it's like, aha, <laughs> wow, these are the, this is what I need. I oh. uh, right away, I knew these are the tools because I felt like my questions, I knew the questions that I was interested around, the, you know, this different context, the relationships within those contexts, the sort of the social structures, um, but hadn't been, again, not even aware that there was another way to inquire uh -huh. that wasn't in a more, what I know now is positive, post-positive worldview. Mm -hmm. Okay. So how did you go about supervision then? Supervision for my PhD. Yeah, like yeah. I well, I had a wonderful to this day a wonderful mentor who was a pediatrician okay. here at Children's Hospital and was also had done his PhD in education at Penn, and so he was my my gatekeeper. Really, okay. uh, again, had a very supportive uh, uh, PhD committee at, at Temple. Mm -hmm. um, I ended up taking a year out of my PhD to study qualitative research methods because I really hadn't, mm. didn't want to start my PhD with no experience whatsoever. Mm -hmm. So I took 
some coursework in ethnography in education at Penn and some other more practically oriented PH or, uh, qualitative research courses in the School of uh, Physical Therapy at Temple and use that year to really garner my qualitative research skills mm -hmm. so that when I went to actually do my doctoral work, which was in ethnography, um, I, I was doing out of the gate some pretty good stuff mm -hmm. because I had, I had so much preparation behind me. Yeah, right. So I want to know a little bit more about the uniqueness of the pediatric education environment. And in your case, it was the NICU. So what can you help me visualize what's different and what's unique between pediatric education, NICU, versus the rest of the education research we do in your perspective and from your experience? So... In, in my experience, again, when I was doing my master's degree in education and I was working with residents who were in pediatric medical education, it was incredibly different because I would leave the hospital at four o'clock, drive up to campus, sit down in a class, had a syllabus, had an instructor, and then I would you know, come back to the city, wake up the next day and go to work where residents were also learning. Mm. And their context was, you know, again, this critically, you know, crazy busy intensive care unit. Mm -hmm. They had no real syllabus. They didn't have an instructor sitting up, standing up in front of them. Um, and so it was just two very different learning contexts. Okay. That, and that's what intrigued me and pulled me into ethnography. Right. And then you also have been carving out your expertise in longitudinal qualitative research. How has been the experience with that? What has been the opportunities, the bumps in the road, the impact? Because that's a very unique way of doing qualitative research that requires quite a lot. Yeah, I think um, in some ways it it goes back to my my farming background okay. um, and just the persistence that it takes to do qualitative research. I always, I sort of joke and I say, it's sort of like a chronic disease. It just needs to be tended. Um, it's not an acute cross-sectional study that you do when you're done. Uh -huh. It's, and, and to equate it to a disease in some ways really is, is, not at all appropriate because it's a relationship. You develop relationships with these individuals who, you know, are your participants, but quickly become your partners. And um, so that, but that, that idea of just sticking with it, never quite knowing exactly how it's going to turn out, right? Because we don't, I think sometimes we fool ourselves into thinking that if we've had these interviews, we'll, we'll, we'll be able to predict or know what people will do. Mm -hmm. And when indeed you follow them over long periods of time, you realize how incredibly complex, idiosyncratic, unique people's lives are. And so you never really know the end. You never really have the end of the story. Okay. Um, 
but you had the relationship. Right. Okay. And which is to me, one of the greatest things about qualitative research, because it's about working with people, as opposed to studying them, like in a more experimental way. That also takes me to think when you do it longitudinally, longitudinally, um, how do you manage the expectations from the institution that wants immediate outcomes from research, publications all the time, with the length of a study that requires the big engagement, but the outcomes don't come after later in the timeline? Have you encountered any of those issues? Not, you know, not, not so much. Um... I think it's important for people to know that when I started, you know, now that I, it took me for almost, well, it took me five or six years to even realize I was doing longitudinal work, honestly. Oh. Um, the first four years where I followed 22 medical students, they were all at one medical school. So we could call it sort of a longitudinal case study. And so uh -huh. it was pretty easy to couch it there in that ethics and IRB because it, was contained to a medical school, you know, an N of 22 subject or uh, participants. What happened was they didn't want to stop. The participants oh. wanted to continue. Mm -hmm. There's no way I could have carried 22 further because it just, it's a, you know, it's a huge data set. Yeah. So I decided, well, let me, let me stay with the ones who are doing pediatrics, knowing that you know, sort of peds is my professional home. And then the other four who wanted to stay with me had surgical subspecialties, had chosen surgical subspecialties. Um, so I said, hey, okay, let's, let's go for it. And let's, as long as you guys are up for it and wanting to talk, um, let, let's, let's go forward. So we, went through residency and as you can imagine you know general surgery is a lot different residency length than pediatrics so people sort of popped into the workforce at, at different periods of time sometimes they popped into the workforce and back into training right. um, and and yet you know again i had six that i that i ended up going with the whole it's been 12 years now and almost every time it's 100% of people, wow. because when you develop that long-term relationship, it it becomes very, for them, what I'm understanding, a point of reflection, unlike they've had before. Mm -hmm. Because what's important to me as a longitudinal qualitative researcher is that I'm sharing data back. So I'm sharing their former selves with them uh -huh. and asking them to respond to their former selves. Okay. And there's just like, who else does that Yeah. for a trainee? So it gets to be really reflect uh, an opportunity to really reflect for them. And to, again, hearing their former selves, um, Obviously, I I I meet I do the analysis, so I bring something to the data. I, I don't want to in any way infer that or imply that it's I'm a blank slate. Um, but as much of, as possible, I'm taking their stories back to them, so they're narrating their own growth. 
Okay. And how it has been for you as the researcher? Can you help in them in, in facilitating that reflection? But I imagine there has been also evolution and impact on you as a researcher. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, it's an incredible honor. Mm -hmm. I think that's more than anything. It's 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 an honor to to be entrusted with their stories, um, to hear their reflections, to hear their growth. I've had the deep appreciation. Uh, one of the participants this summer when we spoke, and this is twelve years, and now they're all into practice. So I'm I'm ending the study, and she just said, I can't, I can't imagine how my career would look without you. Wow. Like, wow. You said, I just, cause there's, there were, there were points that you brought things up that I would never have thought about. Mm. Um, and she's like, can't you, like, can everybody have this? Like, mm. so it has really, um, and I'm not the only one, you know, when I would portray that I'm the only one doing this kind of work, I have colleagues, Lizzie Gordon comes to mind. Um, Lizzie's at the University of Dundee. Uh, Amigo Blanc Blaylock is at uh, Michigan State, where you build these kinds of long-term relationships with trainees, and and you know you're doing, you know you're providing something. It's a safe space for reflection, and it's a there's a depth to it that's hard to explain unless you've done it unless you've done it right yeah. mm -hmm. so it, it feels to me that your journey i like to call it has been anchoring very powerful experiences so you're growing up in your mennonite community the NICU, this experience of longitudinal uh, research and the impact on on the participants are you involved in any new experiences now that you are anticipating this is going to be Another one of big moments in my life. Can you share? Well, what I've, um, oh, what I've, in the last year, um, I've had the privilege of being a PhD supervisor for two PhD candidates, um, and that's a new experience for me. Um, and I'm sure you can say this too, Sarah. I mean, the this next generation of researchers are incredible. Mm -hmm. And I just feel like my work just pales into pales in comparison to some of the stuff they're doing. And so that really excites me that it's, it's not so much my next big step or my big moment, but gearing them up for theirs. Um, and being a, you know, being a support person, someone they can rely on, someone they can think with, that's, I mean, that's just, that's the best part. Mm -hmm. I totally agree with you. It's so rewarding. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I yeah. want to get into kind of the last part of the interview, which I'm calling the small things in life, but sometimes it's not that small, it's just the title. One thing that I learned from you at one of the conferences that I didn't know is that you are a voracious person practitioner of yoga am i right yes i am yes i am so i want to know i didn't have the chance to ask you that day but how did it start and how has it evolved hmm. 
so it started over oh, uh, 10 years ago. Uh, my, my younger sister who introduced me to yoga. Um, and, and to be honest, growing up in a very religious family and community, we were always told that our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. And I never quite understood that until I did yoga. It's like, oh, okay, I get it now. And I've, it's, it's taught me so much. It's taught me mindfulness. It's taught me acceptance. It's given me community. Uh, it's taught me self-care. So, yes, I, I continue to be a big advocate of, of yoga. Are you still doing those four weeks retreats? Uh, no longer, but I just, my husband and I did a yoga retreat last month. It was oh, a nice. four day, a four day retreat, which was, which was lovely. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And you practice every day or how often you practice? Practice probably three or four days a week. You go to a place? I go oh, to a place, I go oh. to a studio. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Wow. That's consistent. Are there any other non-professional activities that you like engaging with besides yoga and reading? Because we reading seems to be a <laughs> default. Yeah. Yeah. Is there anything else? Um, I would say the other thing that's happened in my life that I haven't planned is um, I do a fair bit of caregiving. I had was, was able to stay home with uh, with my dad. Uh, he passed about a year and a half ago. Um, and that was sort of a, a COVID-related thing where, you know, in normal situations, we would have had him in, a, you know, a care facility, but that wasn't possible. So we had to figure out, okay, how do we, how do we do this at home? Um, And then I had a brother-in-law who uh, have a brother-in-law who had a a massive stroke about a year and a half. So I've been spending quite a bit of time um, in South Carolina with my sister um, helping to to care for him. So, yeah, so caregiving has been, I wouldn't say it's a necessarily a fun thing that I do, but it, it certainly has defined it has defined a lot of my life um, at, at, at this stage in my life. And it's, uh, it's, it's a, it's a tricky, it's a tricky balance when you talk about self-care or work-life balance. Um, and how does that, how does that look when you have someone who is very dependent mm-hmm. on you? Um, and it's not a three-year-old, it's a, maybe an 86-year-old. Mm-hmm. So those kinds of caregiving activities have been a big part of, of my life. That Again, I didn't plan for that, um, but it's it's here. So this is where yoga comes in, right? This is what is, and mm-hmm. just accepting what is, and not pushing back, yeah. not you know, feeling angry or forcing, trying to demand a change. Um, It's part of the human experience. Yeah, yeah. But I've seen similarly through my mom who who did that and is doing that for her is praying and going to church more than yoga, but it's kind of the same idea, Mm -hmm. right? But I find that those situations also put you in in the moment of thinking, 
what things do I want to do that I haven't done? So one of my questions is what remains undone that you have wanted to get done for years? Yeah. So I am starting to commit to a book, writing a book. Oh, wow. So had a, just had a lovely conversation with Lorelai Lingard and, uh, always such it's so encouraging um and i've been thinking about it because when you have 12 years worth of data yeah it's very difficult i mean you, you have to chunk things up so much to write a paper that you uh, and the longer one's story becomes the more and more difficult it is to try to just take a piece of it and you realize that you're doing a disservice to the entirety of the story. And so I, I've been frustrated with that and realizing that I have to not, you know, I can't keep forcing myself to write journal articles. I need a venue that's gonna allow me the, the space yeah. uh, to tell these kinds of stories. So that's that's what's the chat, that's the next big thing. Wow. Exciting. I think no, it's I, scary. Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> Excitement comes from being scary too, right? Like it's true. without without the fear is it's hard to accomplish big things. So yeah. yeah. Congratulations yeah. to you and all the Thank best. You. I really look forward to that because that would be such a fantastic endeavor. <laughs> well, I'm hoping my the participants in the study want to write with me. Oh so, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. So we'll we'll um they're also like physicians who've just launched their career. So whether they can actually bring that to bear or, you know, make, make that happen, I don't know. But um, it was, again, it was there it was upon some, upon their recommendation that I write this book. So, well, maybe in the next few years, when you manage to finish that up, we have a conversation about the experience of writing this book. I would love, I would love to be on that side of the book. <laughs> <laughs> so my final question is usually around the idea of, you have had experiences in your life. You may, we made decisions about what we want to become or not become, sometimes accidentally, sometimes consciously. If you hadn't become an academic, what do you think you have chosen to do or to be? Hmm. That's a that's a good question. I I would imagine something related to teaching or something related to education. If if not, because um, even when I was a nutritionist, I was still really interested in that that counseling aspect of one on one teaching. So I would say probably something related to to teaching. Okay, perfect. Okay, Doreen, thank you so much for your time today. It was lovely talking to you. All the best to you with the project. I'm actually excited for you. So I look forward. To uh, I feel like, you. yeah, I feel like I just uh, put a stake in the ground now and now I have to do it. <laughs> exactly. That's how things should work. <laughs> okay, Doreen, thank you so much. And Absolutely. Listening.
This has been The Curiosity Habit. This podcast is hosted by Syra Cristancho and produced by Monica Molinero. You can find all our episodes on podcast apps like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening.